Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. And Way City was house to house. Are you going to do more on Way City or can I yeah, ramble I got, I got on? Yeah, I got a little part um, yeah, go actually ahead. speaking a little bit to what you were just talking about, and it's not long. I, I'll kick it right here. Um, 1,900 hours. This is still Way City uh, fight. Any light that had existed was all but gone. The enemy inside the bunker had run out of time. The task fell on Brown's squad. They decided one man would have to sneak out in the open, get to the bunker, throw open, and bl- or blow the door. Another Marine would toss in a couple frag grenades. Donning their gas masks armed with flashlights, 45 caliber pi- and 45 caliber pistols, PFC David Keefe and Lance Corporal C.C. Campbell were volunteered to lead the attack. After Campbell lobbed the grenades inside, Keefe and Campbell waited for them to go off. The, the grenades caused a series of rapid explosions. With gas masks on, Keefe and Campbell entered the room. Keefe went first. The large bunker contained stalls full of flour and half a foot wide uh, spools of communications cable. Sympathetically, uh, systematically, Campbell and Keefe crept towards each stall each tossing a grenade in one. They needed the rear of the large bunker. All three stalls remained when they received orders to, uh, all three bunkers uh, stalls remained as they received orders to fall back for the night. During the night, the Marines of Fox Company in close proximity to the bunker heard the moaning indicating that there were some other NVA uh, comrades still alive in the bunker. At first light, 5 February, Lance Corporal Pablo Contreras was ordered into the bunker. He entered the door, pointed his machine gun down the long axis of the bunker, and fired uh, and fired half an ammo bandolier towards the back of the bunker. As he did, bodies bounced up off the fl- off off the floor at the other at the other end of the bunker. The moaning and groaning ceased. Ten minutes later, Contreras left the bunker silent. When he did, he caught an eye of Corporal Brown. How'd it go, Pablo? Man, Corporal Brown. The 19-year-old machine gunner said, I just saw those gooks shoot straight up in the air after shooting them. That really freaked me out. For the dirty, <laughs> for the dirty job of removing 24 dead enemy uh, soldiers, the Marines tied comm wire around their ankles and pulled them out. That worked for about 16 bodies. The others, due to the number of grenades that were thrown into the bunker, fell apart as they were pulled out. Fox was forced to pick them up piece by piece. After cleanup, five AK-47s, two SKS carbines, two old M1 carbines, one RPD light machine gun, and five B-40 rocket launchers, and three satchels, uh, satchel charges were recovered. They were loaded up. Yeah, they, they were right around that time. Is I'm thinking of another story. Remember, uh, these are I, do, I wasn't in that battle, Mm-mm-mm. but I was in the basement, of, and we did of the hotel yeah, where, yeah. We, where we shared stories and stuff like that. And uh, there was an interesting thing. You know, Down's gone now uh, out of the room. Mm-hmm. So these guys are telling me their sea stories. Mm-hmm. And there's a story that right after that that they go to and they take the central bank or it's the regional bank uh, 
which was occupied maybe in a second deck or something like that. I can't remember the details because it's mm-hmm. been, what, 15 years since I wrote it. But I do remember it. Um, and there was a big safe on the first deck. Mm-hmm. And they, the guys that went in there told me that they tried the, the door and it was locked. And so they didn't recover any money in, from this th- safe. This is what they told me. Uh-oh. And, b- but Downs, when he's proofreading this, I'm telling him how they, they assaulted this. And later on, there was a suspicion that the Fox Company had guys had stolen all the, the money from the central bank. Mm-hmm. So they put a kind of a a newbie, but he was probably from the, oh, I don't know, Navy intelligence, you know, NIS type of, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, as, as a, trying to get to the corner of this. This is after they, they're just leaving Way City and they're, they're working, oh, the first, first time they're out of the city. And so they're going up the hills. But anyway, so we're hearing all that. No money. They didn't get any. They continue to fight. Blah, blah, blah. It's in the book like that. But they did, Good, do it. Then they put the spy there, uh, and he was obviously not a marine, but he was <laughs> a young guy their age, uh, kind of a newbie. Mm-hmm. And they went up in the mountains. Uh, that was one of the first, like their first day or second day outside mm-hmm. of Wasteland, some hills or something like that. And it was considered really dangerous. That type of thing. I don't know. They they did build that up like it was dangerous. And they had resolved the troops had resolved not to give this guy any any uh, mosquito repellent. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing how swollen up he was and how he had to leave that next the, the very next day. <laughs> they were hoping that they were going to be <laughs> shooting the bull. Hey, what are you going to do with all the money? Huh? I don't know what I'm spelling. This type of thing. It, and they just screwed all over this. Back to the book here, and this is going to be where, where Lieutenant Colonel Brown enters the scene. The following morning on 30 July, First Lieutenant Tom Martin was evacuated. By late afternoon, the enemy had withdrawn and the Anwa Valley was under the control of 5th Marine Regiment. Major Steele directed both Fox and Echo Companies to Anwa. He also assigned Captain Brown to Command Company F, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. While he waited for the arrival of his troops, Brown gathered his personal gear and went into the company's newly erected admin tent to meet the 1st Sergeant. 1st Sergeant Curry was a small, thin man with a quiet voice who earlier in his career was an admin chief. This would be perfect. The first sergeant would stay mostly to the rear and muster the troops in and out of the field and manage the company's rear area logistics. Brown would remain in the field with the gunny and fight the war. Everyone was happy with this arrangement. And over the next six months, the first sergeant showed up in the field on only about two or three occasions with papers for Brown to sign. Brown immediately learned that the company had only one officer, First Lieutenant McNeil, besides himself, and the company had only three non, uh, staff non-commissioned officers, or staff NCOs. The First Sergeant, uh, Gunnery Sergeant, the First Sergeant, Gunnery Sergeant, is it Van Valkenburg? Van Valkenburg. Valkenburg, gotcha. And Staff Sergeant Palmer. It had lost two, uh, two officers and, and staff non-commissioned officers in yesterday's fight to secure Amwa Valley, and thus was stripped of its seniority. Fox finally arrived back at Amwa at dusk. 
Brown prov- uh, approved the Gunnies' request to let them chow down, clean their weapons, and sleep in. The company would do some administrative things in the morning, eat lunch, and then meet at, meet at noon formation. At the, at the Gunnies' recommendation, Fox planned for fire team training in the afternoon. All morning long, Brown tried to concentrate on the administrative tasks such as signing unit diaries, checking out classified documents, drawing his weapon, canteen, cartridge belt, ammo, writing a quick letter home, and meeting the new commanding officer of the battalion, Lieutenant Colonel James Stemple. He also stopped by to say hello to Major Steele, who had reverted to his former job as the battalion executive officer. After meeting his new boss, Captain Brown, and his, had the distinct, the distinct privilege of meeting Captain, Captain Mike Downs, who had who was the assistant operations officer for the 5th Marines. Down's job was to ensure that Brown had a big picture from the regimental viewpoint. However, Brown didn't miss the main thrust of the briefing, which was to tell the new Fox skipper that Downs had commanded the heroic group of men of Company F during the Battle of Way City, and that their new commanding officer, Brown, should ensure they received the very best. Clearly, that's what they deserved. At noon, 1st Sergeant Curry assembled the company, they wore flak jackets and helmets. Their M16s were slung on their shoulders. Many were the actual living heroes of the Battle of Way City. Among them were Gunny von Valkenburg, Corporal, Corporal George Blunt, Corporal Gus Grillo, and Lance Corporal C.C. Campbell. These were the men who had just cleared the Anho Valley of the Amwan Valley of the enemy, and they were tru- uh, truly hardened combat troops. None of the, uh, not one read disappointment in Brown's face as he gazed out at the th- at the three undermanned platoons comprised of about 75 tired-looking troops in, uh, in their dried, mud-coated jungle utilities. Was this the magnificent Fox Company that Captain Downs was talking about? Man, Brown thought, I have a lot to learn. Brown saluted the first sergeant, put the company at ease, and made some remarks about the moments later even he couldn't recall. Called them back to attention, ordered right face, forward march. They hiked out three miles and conducted fire team training. Speed marched back to the and, and speed marched back to the camp. So many straggled that Gunny Van Valkenburg and a few non-commissioned officers uh, Fox did have couldn't keep them together. Upon their return, Brown reassembled the company, now looking worse than ever, and addressed them all. Way City is behind you, he admonished. If you do not get your act together, I will replace you. You will all be killed if you don't immediately improve. Turning to the gunny, he said, Gunny Van Valkenburg, sir, dismiss the troops, Brown commanded. <laughs> and that's kind of what you talked about did earlier. I, did I spell S-A-C-T, act together? <laughs> <laughs> I probably better get your ass together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, or another color for four-letter word. <laughs> get your shit together right now or things are going to go badly. Right. So, and that's a, I mean, you're in a bad spot. They already know they're combat-hearted hardened and uh well they weren't um were no yeah they no some no. of them you get these replacements mm-hmm. remember we we lost a lot of guys in way so they're they got newbies there mm-hmm. and so uh we and we replace them one at a time so i'm not saying how many newbies we had but i would imagine that many 40 percent mm-hmm. yeah they were never in way city mm-hmm. at least uh, i would even think more than that well you you had 30 kia no that that, that was a no, that was Union too. Oh, that was Union, Union too. But in but in Way City, we did lose a lot too. I don't mm-hmm. know how many, but uh, probably twenty, because mm-hmm. that was a long time. I don't know if they were killed, but uh, certainly we got a whole bunch wounded, and you got wounded for the second time, you're out. 
And so you have a mixture of combat hardened guys, and then you know a half of them are replacements, maybe. And and some of the the few were really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a photo in there of uh, one particular fellow. I think it was in in the Way City area. No, I'm sorry. In when I took over and and all that kind of stuff, but it shows two straggling. Two straggly guys. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. One photo has two or three straggly guys. And, no, not that one. But, uh, and then, then I have Blunt in there. I think it was Blunt. Uh, but then anyway, a big stud of a guy uh, who was squared away the whole time. But it doesn't matter. That's you know, there's a bunch of you guys yeah. are gonna have to pick the book up. He's got uh, he's got pictures of of guys from from the time there. He's well, got uh, graphics and maps that help you better contextually understand the battlefields of Union Two, of Way City, of, of some of these bigger uh, bigger engagements. But yeah. go, go on, Dave. Yeah. At any rate, uh, so we realized that uh, <laughs> we had a long way to go, um, and. They they weren't squared away, mm-hmm. uh, and after you've been in war for a while and fighting like Way City and just coming into the country and all that kind of stuff, you're not in good shape. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're not acclimated, and uh, and you don't you don't have the discipline to know when you should drink water and when you shouldn't drink and taking your salt salt water pills and uh, things like that. Um, you're almost starting all over again, mm-hmm. and so. Gunny Van Valkenburg was good. I had to leave him go after that napalm experience, which you're obviously going to get to mm-hmm. at some particular point. Um, but he was knowledgeable and he was experienced. He was a, to me, he was a good logistician. Mm-hmm. Um, but in building back a company, he was not not the perfect guy. And I can tell you the sea stories later later on. Well, yeah, we're we're in Anwa now, <clears throat> so oh no no no, I take this back. Um, we're in Anwa and we do some operations and then that, uh, napalm, uh, issue comes up. So we, we should be moving into that area. Yeah, can I, and can that's, I, that's actually next if you want me to cover it and then you can give your side of it or you want to build up that, that uh, op? Mm, no, uh, I'll let you do it okay. because I, I, I can take it from okay, there okay. and explain things. Uh, no problem. but it, it's. Uh, we we did some patrolling. Oh, we have that one. There's one story I, I can share with you. So I, I've got the company now for almost um, five days, okay. something like that. Yeah. And we are going on a patrol looking for some enemy people coming across the river, mm-hmm. Tubon River, T-H-U-B-O-N, um, B-O-N being a word good. But at any rate, uh, good river. Uh, so, no, whatever. Two. I can't remember what that stands for. <laughs> um, <laughs> too good river. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so beyond there, we're kind of uh, an, an area. It's going to slip my mind right at this second, but it's a little bit more vegetated and a little hillier. Mm-hmm. And then the Anval Anval Valley. Then we were on that side. Right. So, uh, okay. And the river along there was probably. Uh, 200 meters wide, mm-hmm. something on that. Like if you ran to 220 in high school, I don't know if you did. About, did that, dis- about that distance. Um, so we are, with another company, moving along this river. They're inland further. We're along the river itself. Mm-hmm. The guys up front see some sampans attempting to cross 
this river. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was one of those things, as you know, now we got a new situation. We No one has shot at us since I've been CO at that point, mm-hmm. all five days. But there we, we got a chance to score something. And even, you know, we had scared the bejesus. The whole 5th Marine Regiment moved down there and owns Anwa Valley now. Prior to us getting there, when I, all the casualties you were talking about five days ago, uh, the, the enemy was in charge. Now mm-hmm. we had a whole regiment there, so mm-hmm. and we're, we're doing things. Anyways, you know how it goes with the troops and all that kind of stuff. It's just one of those, hey, hey watch out, hey, get down, get down, get down. You know, all those kind of uh, whispering <laughs> warnings and all that kind of stuff. A whole bunch of gooks up there. And um, so, at any rate, it's a, it was uh, one of those things. We got down, I sneak, up, sneak on up there and stuff like that. And you could see them loading uh, stuff on a, a side pan. Sandpam, thanks. Sandpam. You could see them doing that, and there were two of them, two of them, at any rate. Uh, so then they started across, and we opened up fire. At well, they, they were about a third of the way over. We wanted to go further across, but, the, you know, the, what happened? There's no control on a line of fire that was along a riverbank, in mm-hmm. and out, in and out. Once a, someone decided it was a good time, they did it. Any rate, long story short, uh, they turned around, paddled back, and we hit water all around them. We didn't hear a damn guy. And they all <laughs> jumped off. I and remember ran, that chapter. In there. And ran up into into the woods. They yeah, called and that so, one Maggie's Drawers. Now, so, you? <laughs> you know, this is not this is not a, an 03 problem, a captain's problem. This The gunny is going <laughs> to... Yeah, the poor old gunny's got to get that square. It turned out that the, um, the M16s were uh, aligned and stuff like that. Um, so uh, they had to be uh, taken to the armor and uh, get them corrected. And so uh, then we... Uh, and what, there was something to that, though. What was wrong with the, the weapons? Why were they not shooting Something right? not calibrated? Calibrated, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it wasn't like the, these guys were bad shots. The sights were like this, and, and the, the bullet hole was like this, off to the side. So you guys looking where the ship's supposed to be, only it goes that way. So the sights were not aligned with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with the muzzles, mm-hmm. and that's the best I can tell you. I'm not an armor. Yeah, so. that's a rough uh, that's a rough experience, and you're right there about to drop the hammer, and then you can't hit them. Whole <laughs> <laughs> rifle company doing it, and, and of course, you know me, I'm expecting high things like Jesus God. So anyway, we got that all squared away, um, and then we continued to patrol uh, and all that kind of stuff. Now you're you're about ready to get to the napalm. Yes, sir. So we end up at uh, the um, uh, high ground. I can't. I'm hitting a blank right now. Uh, where's your map? You got a map? Can I check? Liberty Bridge. Area. Liberty Bridge. Yeah. Yes, sir. We end up at Liberty Bridge, and which is a uh, along the main surface road that uh, links Da Nang to uh, Anwa. Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. so the 1st Marine Division is uh, up in Da Nang, and then we're down there at the 5th Marines, part of that 1st Marine Division. Uh, so they're at Anwa. So anyway, too. And then the way in which we got across there, I don't think you're going to read that. Hopefully I don't. No, you're good. Go but anyway, uh, there used to be a bridge mm. across there, uh, but not when I got there. So they had two, um, one or two barges they had. I'm just going to say one barge now. Uh, and it was fairly large. You could put a, a tank on there, and, and or you could put two or three vehicles on there and a whole bunch of troops and all that kind of stuff. And you'd hook 
there's roads on either side of the river. Mm-hmm. And you'd, you'd hook a, a steel wire or metal wire onto the barge, and we had poles there of some sort, and there's a truck that would pull it across, and then it would... Just basically, you'd put it in neutral, and the next truck would pull it back, mm-hmm, back mm-hmm. and forth like yeah. that. Like and a ferry. So, yeah, like a ferry. And uh, back in the old days with the horses and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it worked very efficiently. So that's where we went. And the uh, later on, we're, we're guarding Liberty Bridge after mm-hmm. the NAPA. And, uh, and I had one platoon on the other sides also. But at this point, we, we get up there, and now you can read Napalm because we, we start out from Liberty Bridge. Absolutely. So going back to the book now, Fox, Fox's first major attack. Sorry, this book. Uh, Fox, Fox's first major attack into the enemy territory began on 5 August 1968 after, after the weapons had been calibrated, which is good, the Maggie Drawers uh, <laughs> interlude. Good, uh, good interlude there. Uh, as part of Operation Mameluke Thrust 2, the battalion command group with Echo and Fox companies were, atta- were to attack eastward from a point along Liberty Road, a thousand meters south of, is that Fulak 6? Yeah, Fulak. Fulak mm. 6. Mm. The company command would, uh, would lead and was to attack, seize, and occupy the small hamlet of Lotharp 4. Can I interrupt? Absolutely. Yeah, for what's, what it's worth. Oh. So we have that main surface road between Liberty Bridge and Anwa, right? Mm, mm. Now we're talking about going eastward towards the uh, South China Sea. Okay, and then that has Highway 1, goes and up and down the, mm-hmm. the, whole, the whole country there. And so we're between Highway 1 and Anwa, and, and where we were at Liberty Bridge is a, a, a swampy area uh-huh. called... Gonoi Island, Island, and that is what we are going next to Gonoi Island, Mm -hmm. but that's where the enemy was. And you knew that at this point, yes? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so the enemy could always withdraw there. That was their safe ground, because we never did it. If there was any active uh, hamlet there, I didn't know of it. So the active hamlets were next to there, and that's Mm -hmm. where we're attacking first. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's where we're going. We're going... Going in that direction. Later on, we sweep all the way through Gono Island, but, but that's later on. Right, right. Take it. Go ahead. All right. So as you're sweep, making this sweep up, we'll pick up right there. Um, Fox Company would lead and was to attack, seize, and occupy the small hamlet of Lothar 4, 1,200 meters from the main road down a gentle slope and across mostly open fields. Artillery from a 105-millimeter howitzer battery located at the high ground overlooking Liberty Bridge would provide direct support for 2-5's attack. The battalion 81 millimeter mortar platoon would fully dedicate was fully dedicated to the mission. Fixed wing attack and fighter aircraft A4s and F4s were available from Denang. I'm gonna skip through a little bit of this, picking back up. Captain Brown was pleased. The company's formation, <clears throat> sorry, the company's formation was smart. As a matter of fact, the Marines' individual dispersion. Uh, dispersal for such open terrain seemed to be as good as he had seen it in, during his seven years in the Corps. Thus, the enemy did not cause any casualties as Fox moved to the point about 400 meters from the hamlet and received 20 to 30 shots from a pair of automatic weapons. The Marines took firing positions, returned fire, held their ground, and waited for fire support. Soon, the 81mm mortars uh, forward observer, Corporal Pete Novak, looked at Captain Brown with the Prick 25 radio handset and raised it to his ear and said, First round's away, Skipper. The rounds landed and Novak made a small correction. Satisfied with the round, he then gave the fire for effect. 
an order signaling all eight mortars to fire a set number of rounds and established for a fire mission. 24 mortar rounds shot from the high ground behind the company began to rain down on the small hamlet. Their immense, ex uh, their immense explosions were almost immediately followed by the assaulting platoons as they leapt into action using a hailstorm of rounds as a shield of fire. The Marines reached the hamlets, bounded by the palm trees and other vegetation, and were rapidly swallowed up as they stepped through the hamlet's facade. The 81s had shifted their fires back to the edge of the hamlet. The plan was to continue shifting these fires outward away from the hamlet towards the possible enemy escape routes in the rice fields. Corporal Rich Carter and Corporal Jeff Shea were long-term long third platoon radio operator, had just entered the hamlet, and were at a small cemetery consisting of burial mounds. Immediately, they could see that the fires were shifting, instead of away from the hamlet, back towards the middle of it. Shea, call the company and tell them to cease fire, Rich Carter directed. Already did, Rich, he paused. They're on it, but five shots are in the air. Carter yelled as loud as he could. Incoming! Incoming! Everybody hit the deck! Carter, Shea, and the platoon's right, new right guide, a corporal, helplessly uh, observed the first three rounds impact within third's position, third platoon's position, each round closing on them. They, then they dove to the ground. The fifth round landed perilously close to three of the men. Fox, this is Fox 3 over, Shea called as he followed Carter to an area where the Marine's bicep had been badly injured by mortar shrapnel. Shea went on. Carter lingered into cell, uh, into stuff some battle dressings onto the man's wounded arm. Shea finally connected with the company. Roger, Fox, we have several casualties. We need a medevac. Carter cut up to Shea. Sam was hit, Shea murmured. Shea was referring to the Lance Corporal Lupe, I might uh, butcher this, Monsabias? Monobias. Monobias. Commonly known as Sam. Arrived in Vietnam earlier that year with Carter. They had been in Nong Song on the night of 3 July 1967. Way City, Han, uh, the Haivan Pass operations together. Sam had just returned from R&R. Shea called to Fox the second time. Soon the company's radio began crackling away. Fox 6, this is Fox 3. We have a priority, one Whiskey uh, India Alpha, two priority Whiskey India Alpha, and one Kilo India Alpha in the ville they were hit by 81s over he informed referring to the wounded and killed men roger three will notify texas pete brown's radio operator replied using the battalion command's call sign texas pete had control of the 81 millimeter platoon brown and the company corpsman hospital se hospitalman second class hn2 andy rakow hurried hurriedly joined the third platoon in the ville carter led him to the spot where the fourth mortar round landed the high explosive or he round had detonated and had tripped and had stripped the leaves of small branches from the cluster of 20-foot-high bamboo trees, creating a small clearing. Lance Corporal Monsabias's head, uh, headless body lay on the lay in the middle. Two Marines from his squad were readying uh, his remains for transport. Carter could not disguise his discomfort. One of his closest friends had been brutally and needlessly killed. Captain Brown sensed the heart-wrenching pain from the rest of the men, too, as they stoically went about their gross and grim duties. Monsabias had been uh, a well-liked Marine in 3rd Platoon. The irony of the death of the Texas Marine at the hands of their own people tore at the men's sense, senses in, uh, of right and wrong. He had been killed by friendly fire, a mortar round from the battalion's own 81mm mortar platoon, and the knowledge alone had dampened the fighting spirit of 3rd Platoon. Captain Brown called Texas Pete and demanded an explanation. 
We're looking into it, came the answer. Instead of the company occupying the six-hooch hamlet Texas Pete ordered earlier, Brown directed the first platoon of the outpost of the hamlet with second squad and pulled the rest of his men back to a knoll 250 meters away overlooking the hamlet. He rationalized that the company could not react fast enough if he needed support, and the squad and their fresh, uh, fresh air on the knoll that might calm the troops still, still, still spooked by the 81-millimeter round that unnecessarily uh, ended one of their own. That night, Brown received an explanation uh, he saw earlier about the errant 81-millimeter rounds. The stray rounds were classified as accidental with the implication that there was some sort of malfunctioning deficiency. Brown, who had been in the 81-millimeter mortar platoon commander in 63, thought it, thought it was utter, utter bull. A higher pri probability remained that an error had occurred in either the part of two fires, fires port coordination center or the fire direction center of the 81-millimeter mortar platoon. He vowed to not use the battalion's motor platoon again unless he was absolutely necessary or until the platoon had better proven its abilities. And um, we're going to move on, but just that leading up, now we have another incident, another, you know, another situation where maybe needless loss of life is occurring because of maybe it's the fog of war, maybe it's bad training, maybe it's bad command, but, but speak to that a little bit. Yeah, you want so we go on after that, right? The next morning. No, I'm, I'm going to con continue, but yeah. Please, gonna, please are you going to read it, or am I going to talk it? Uh, I'm almost to it, but if you got something before that, we can hit it, or I can keep uh, going. Nothing more than I get my ass chewed out in the morning because I uh, uh, outpost the place. Mm -hmm. But you know these hamlets, um, they're small. I and when I say small, they're about. If I have to think. Uh, 75 yards across each each way. You know, mm -hmm. they're not very big, and they get and villages. The the hooches are about oh as big as this half of the garage. Mm -hmm. So you're not dealing with a lot. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And and it was plopped in the middle of a huge field. You know, like what a thousand meters this way, a thousand meters this way, and you got this thing in the middle. So if you outpost it, the guys stay awake. They could anybody coming. It really wasn't significant. Mm -hmm. um, and so I used my own judgment. And he wanted me to chew out. I don't know if he was the Stemple who ends up being a good friend. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if 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 that was just... He's a new company uh, battalion commander. World War II guy. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I don't know if he was just uh, getting... Everybody alert that he's he's saying something. Don't I know the difference? Like he's in charge. Mm -hmm, right. And it, I, didn't, I, I didn't care. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I politely said, "Oh, okay." And he said, then he went right on with the the next, which is where you are. Mm -hmm. And I, okay. Okay, we'll keep picking it up from there. Look, one question: Could you have housed an entire company in that hamlet anyway? I mean. It would have been tight, and it yeah. would have been dangerous. Too. It would have been because your dispersion would have been up really bad. Yeah, yeah. I think so. That's a good point. Uh, and not, whether or not I, I guess I didn't think about that or whatever. But uh, yeah, I was just thinking about it while you're talking I, about I, it. I, I think I would have put the CP in there with one platoon, and then I would have outposted it. Yep. You go out this way and find right. find a piece of the rice paddy, and good luck. Mm -hmm. That type of thing. I, that that's probably what I the option. But I, you know, again, they they just got mortared, so. I wanted to pull everybody away from the bloody scene yes. and, and all yeah. that kind of stuff, and and it was very quite pleasant, good sleeping up on that hill. I mean, you know, they outposted their group and all that, and the, and the battalion was just behind us. 
uh, 300 yards up up on the road, that mm-hmm. hard service road, uh, not main service road. Okay, go ahead. Check back to the book. Uh, Fox's performance that morning was was quite noteworthy as Fifth Marines had no sizable content since uh, contact since the day after they entered the Anwa Valley one week earlier. This morning, Fox had emerged and reinforced three. Uh, I'm sorry engaged a reinforced enemy company and combined with supporting arms killed 23 enemy and captured uh, captured their 75 millimeter recordless rifle however fox did not come out unscathed corporal fonte had been killed and doc andy rackow had been mortally wounded 17 other marines had been wounded and were evacuated four others earned purple hearts but were not evacuated stemple concurred with brown's recommendation for putting fonte in for the navy cross medal 1040 hours. During the next hour, the, bat- the battalion sent two Amtraks with supplies and ammunition forward as well as, well as a platoon from Echo Company to recover the 75mm recoilless rifle. They would also assist in the evacuation of the, mo- of the wounded. Munitions water, and water were distributed. The first and third platoons stayed forward, ate their noon meal, and remained alert as they, as they started on to Go- uh, Gonoi Island. Everyone remained silent. At 11.45, the 2nd Platoon assisted, uh, had assisted earlier with evacuating the wounded. Brown gave the order for the platoon to lead the company off the high ground and back to Liberty Road. While waiting to take off, they gathered in a small clearing. Most were sitting and relaxing. Staff Sergeant Dick Palmer was in high spirits. The company's victory had boosted the morale of his men. The captured prizes created heroic feelings in the men. The feelings were not unlike, one's, uh, not unlike the one football player's despite being covered with bumps and bruises experienced in the locker room after winning a game. The men of 2nd Platoon dropped their, dropped their backpacks, flak jackets, helmets, and weapons, opened up their cartridge belts, and proceeded to dig out Kansas Sea rations from their packs. The usual horse trading commenced while some of the guys tried to procure food that was more palatable to their taste buds. After a little while of bantering, everyone settled down and ate. Some Marines gulped, with, uh, gulped while other Marines savored each bite. It simply felt good just to sit back and relax a little from the war and reminisce about things back in the world. Brown, with the company command element, and the two tanks had remained in the open field. This was the same site where the Amtraks recovered some of the wounded in the 75mm recoilless rifle. The company command group was separated from 2nd Platoon by a 10-meter thick bamboo hedgerow. While the command was waiting... For the word to move out, Staff Sergeant Dick Palmer and 2nd Platoon Leader visited Captain Brown as they coordinated details of the movement. Following his meeting with the company commander, Palmer returned to the platoon and met with his three squad leaders to familiarize their movement back to Liberty Bridge and Anwa Road. At 12.15, a black, a black Ace 14, I'm sorry, at 12.15 hours, Black Ace 14, this is front runner over, the Marine F-4 Phantom fighter, fighter pilot called to the Army Air the Army Aerial Observer over the air net that he was flying south from Thuathien Province. Is that pronounced right? Thuathien. Thuathien Province at 8,000 feet above Amwa Valley. This is Black Ace 14 over. The Army Captain responded from the, from the Bird Dog 01E observation aircraft loitering in Anwa's airspace. Black Ace, TAC Air, Da Nang told me to check in with you. I have a couple napalm canisters, and I didn't use them on my mission up north, and I need to get rid of them before I can land back at Da Nang. Got any targets of opportunity? Roger, front runner. I have several on Gonoi Island, east of Liberty Bridge, over. Roger, Black Ace, show me the way. Okay, front runner. I'll mark the enemy troop position with a Willie Pete rocket. 
three, perhaps four minutes passed until bird dog pilot fired his white phosphorus rockets. Rocket away, front runner over. Copy, Black Ace. 1220. Roger, Fox 6, we're moving out. This second platoon radio operator responded and nodded to Palmer. Palmer casually pointed to his first squad leader who had been looking back at Staff Jardin for the signal. Without a word spoken, the lead squad began moving back in the small field surrounded by bamboo trees. Marines of the other two squads remained seated on the ground next to their packs, waited for the final word for their squad to saddle up and move out. In the distance, the noise of the jet circling above could be heard. No one, no one paid any attention to the sky. The sky was clear without clouds. The sun's brilliance reflected upperly sharp from the river stunning Gonoi Island some 1,500 meters south of Company F's fo uh, Company Fox 225. <coughs> Splash, the Army pilot announced in an even-toned voice, front runner, do you see the smoke over? Both the Marine pilot and his rear seat radar intercept officer, RIO, looked around. Their heads jerked alternatively left and right. At times, even at 8,000 feet, the sun's reflection in the river was blinding. The ROI's head snapped right again. White smoke, five miles, their target of opportunity. At this altitude, the RIO naturally thought it was the Willie Peter marking, the, uh, marking rocket shot by the Army pilot. He was wrong. The smoke he had found was coming off the small hooch still smoldering from Fox's advance in the morning. The RIO pointed out the smoke to the pilot. I have it, Black Ace, the pilot announced to the spotter. I'll be diving at the target on a heading of 080. His smoke already deployed. The Army spotter never saw the smoke coming from the smoldering hooch. <coughs> Confirming the attack angle and the spotter announced, Front Runner, you are cleared hot to come in. Many thanks, the pilot replied as he banked the Phantom to the right, bearing down on the group of men clad in greenish uniforms. The plane increased speed during its sharp dive. As the jet got closer and closer, the pilot saw several targets of opportunity. Had he had an anti-tank munition as a payload, he would have chosen uh, he would have chosen the two tanks, but he didn't. He just had two napalm canisters, so he chose the most devastating target. His attention focused on the gathering uh, on the gathering of approximately thirty men in the middle of the bamboo patch, about a hundred meters from the white smoke. He shared his. He shared his plan to napalm the group of men in the small clearing with his RIO. They'll never know what hit him, he said. The RIO released the payload, announcing, They're away. Instantly, the pilot hit the afterburners on both engines, banking back towards Da Nang. 12.30. Dave DeGroat looked desperately at his close buddy C.C. Campbell to confirm what he was hearing. The jet's rumbling grew louder and louder. As one, the men of 2nd Platoon turned, swiveled their collective heads, instantaneously assessing the direction of the incoming Phantom. Everyone in the platoon looked to see what direction the noise was coming from. Horrified, the men realized the F-4 was flying low towards their position. Too late, they reacted. Anticipating an easy trip back, Captain Dave Brown's pack landed on one of the, M1, in the M48 tanks in a secure place between uh, the strapped-on the strapped 5-gallon water can and the turret. Seconds later, the bellow of the F-4, now only 150 feet above Brown's heads, erupted. He hit the deck. The jet's thrust turned into the airspace above, and Brown fought the sh uh, felt the, shout, the sharp thunderclap. Instantly, the dual afterburners of the Phantom roared, then blasted two 10-foot-long cones of yellow-orange flames that propelled the great, white, the great War Machine skyward. The afterburner noise quieted in less than five seconds, and, there was, and it was extinguished by the Denning Denang bound aviator. In those seconds, the jet was already half a mile away, 2,000 feet in the air and climbing. The canister's paths were certain.
His breath arrested, limbs frozen, his gut wrenching. Brown watched the incendiary bomb speed to earth. So really they passed, they progressed, uh, their progress appeared as if it was in slow motion to him. The captain watched in agony as they tumbled silently over his position and over the 20 foot high, 10 foot thick wall of bamboo trees that separated from his second platoon. The cans of death slammed directly into 35 Marines clad in their greenish uniforms. Most were sitting next to their packs waiting to lead Fox Company down the hill. As the bomb struck the ground, firing pins detonated their explosive elements, igniting their principal content, a jelly-like chemical known as napalm. A multi-layered, bubbled, red and orange fireball edged with inky black smoke rose over 40 feet into the air and spread across the ground. As it did, it consumed all the oxygen in its path and replaced it with burning chemicals. At the top of the fireball was the opaque black smoke and chemical fire that seemed to reach out after the fast-fading gray smoke of the jet's cooled afterburners. Before real, the realization of what was happening sank into his brain, Lance Corporal Dave DeGroat's position burst into an inferno of scorching flames. He could feel the napalm jelly splatter on his body as it ignited into, uh, into life-destroying fire. He tried to run, but he kept bumping into Corporal C.C. Campbell. They continued knocking each other down as they tried to flee the hell that was all around them. There was no place to escape. The fire consumed everything. DeGroat watched the pictures of his life dance in front of his eyes. It was like watching a video game, a video played on fast forward. Even the minor events of his life leapt forward from the recesses of his brain. For De Groot, the pain stopped. He felt peace, ready for what would come next, which certainly would be death. Then, as quickly as it started, in a matter of seconds, it seemed like it was over. Time froze for a brief moment, yet DeGroote had no realization of how much time had passed. As the flames died down, men were running all around trying to escape the pain of the burns, but to no avail. Other Marines came running in to help, but there was not much they could do. By the time they, ar they arrived, some of the men's burned flesh was covered with huge water blisters. Some flesh was charred, hair burned away, and where it had not been covered. Several Marines that came rushing in for DeGroote, for DeGroote's aid hardly recognized him. They kept asking each other, Is that DeGroote? Is that DeGroote? When they poured some water on, the disfigured on their disfigured hands and arms of the cooling sensation only helped for a brief moment. The excruciating pain returned quickly now. DeGroote was helped down to the ground was helped down to the ground so that the Marines could take his gear and equipment off and cut the jelly and cut the jelly-splattered, tattered jungle fatigues away. Once done, he was naked except for his boots. Brown rushed through the three-foot-wide path inside the wall of bamboo. He halted abruptly, viewing the carnage. Steam like smoke rose off everything, and the packs and rifles were on the ground. The bandoliers of linked machine gun ammo, the scattered helmets, the grass... The bamboo, and most vividly, the most horribly, the Marines. All but six or seven Marines were hit by the napalm. Though not hit, uh, those not hit were on the opposite side from where the napalm had spewed. Its fiery poison stripped the smoldering camouflage uniforms from the friends' bodies. The survivors screamed and cried in, in pain. No one burned. Uh, no one burned. Escaped the water blisters. Those distinct blisters ranged in size from a 4-inch to a 12-inch splatter on someone's forearm to a bowling ball-sized blister covering a young man's scrotum. 
Doc Lonnie Conley, who fortunately had been 30 meters away from the impact area, was consumed with the magnitude of the disaster and only had time to tend to the most severely burned. Brown's mind was spinning with prior prioritizing immediate actions. He withdrew from the carnage. Before leaving, Brown spotted Corporal Eddie Stallings, Stallings, whose squad had led the company off the off the hill, avoiding serious burns, was now assisting burned victims. Hey, Stallings, Brown yelled. Yeah, Stallings hollered back, not knowing who was calling it for his help. Make sure you get all the ammo and C4 away from the fire. We don't need anything cooking off. Now recognizing the store, Stallings acknowledged. Aye, sir. Brown then spotted his old friend, Staff Sergeant Palmer, who was helping his men. Dick Brown yelled. Brown called. Yes, sir, Palmer blurted int uh, intently. Dick, take care of this mess for a few minutes, Brown shouted. I'm going back to check on our security and get some evac birds. Oh, I told Stallings to remove the C4. It may, uh, may be in the packs. Got you, Captain. Palmer nodded, turning away. Brown ran back through the bamboo opening and yelled to his company radio operator, Lance Corporal Beliski. Ski, call battalion and give him a sit rep. Already done, Skipper. Tell him we need an evac, at least 30 guys. Roger, sir. <clears throat> I need to speak to one uh, to one three. The captain declared. He referred to Staff Sergeant Easton, Corporal Carter, and first uh, first and third platoons. Here, use this phone. Bliski offered. Yep. Fox one and Fox three. This is Fox six. Give me your actuals over. Brown commanded. Once they came on the net, Brown warned them just how vulnerable the company now found itself in the counter for a counterattack. Operating independently. They were to ensure the perimeter was safe. As Brown directed his platoon leaders, Beliski announced that the battalion had snatched CH-53 Sea Stallion flying out of Amois to Da Nang, and it would be there in about five minutes. Brown rushed back through the bamboo tunnel to assist Palmer and C.C. Campbell stood in the jungle path blocking his passage. His blackened face and blistered torso had burned uniform trousers spoke volumes. The two stared at each other without a word for what seemed like an eternity. Finally, the burned man Rass, Skipper, You know, why'd you let this happen? Brown stared at the young man. He was without words. There was no comfort to give and no answer. Brown shook his head slowly, knowing that he couldn't answer. The simple question encompassed the totality of combat leadership's awesome responsibility. In a minute, never breaking eye contact, Brown said gently, Come on, Marine. I'm going to get you home. That was a pretty big day. Yeah, that's something. At any rate, um, yeah, <clears throat> you have to disengage from the um, calamity and, and mm -hmm. the wounded in action and the KIAs and stuff like that. If you want to make sure you, that that was the one thing that yeah. I I didn't, I wasn't that close with everybody. Mm -hmm. I, I, the only guy that I really knew fairly well was this guy Rakow, who you read, uh, and he went in there into. A battle that just that morning when we got up there, <clears throat> and he was my uh, company corpsman, mm -hmm. and it was going to be a doctor out of Philadelphia where I'm nearby, <clears throat> and um, his dad was a doctor, so he was my senior corpsman, all that kind of good guy. Um, but I didn't know him that well. Remember, I've been with the company for, what, a week? Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's not been long. Welcome aboard, Dave. <laughs> you go from can't hit the uh, sand pan coming across the river to whatever the hell else. 81 uh, millimeters bombing you. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. At any rate, uh, and it could have happened to anybody. But yeah. uh, uh, you're identifying with the guys. Me, I had to 
disengage from any emotional experience mm-hmm. just to watch out because <clears throat> we had just chased in that little battle that morning the bad guys off the hill mm-hmm. into Gonoi Island. Mm-hmm. Now, at that point, we were extremely vulnerable, even though they hadn't planned it. Right. Uh, we, we were extremely vulnerable. So that's where I had to make sure uh, that we get the evac out. The ammo was, uh, you know, the bands of bandoliers of uh, machine gun rounds and all that kind of stuff. They could be cooking, cooking off anywhere. Mm-hmm. It was just laying around there. And then um, when the 53, the 53 came... That was the first time I ever saw a 53, how big it was. It was interesting. It was 46s before that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so um, uh, that's my comments. And uh, it was bullshit. I mean, that's what I signed up for, so I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so uh, <clears throat> and, and I wasn't, I mean, I didn't lay awake at night and cry. And all yeah, that yeah. Kind of stuff. So then we, uh, you want to talk more about it? Yeah. Right, I'm ready to move on. To, yeah, absolutely. So then... We we have to go down to Liberty Bridge, and that I f- forgot the exact name of the uh, uh, hill we were on. But <clears throat> as that main surface road uh, existed above the river, there was high ground, and that's where then Liberty Bridge was hooked it, hooked on kind of to that high ground, and the road split in half. Mm-hmm. And the, the little bit higher portion of the half was on, if, if we're looking towards Saigon, was on the right-hand side. And then just slightly below that, as the hill went down, there was a 105-millimeter howitzer battery there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we didn't interact, although we were responsible for the security. So we went back there after na- getting napalmed mm-hmm. to build up again. Yeah. Again, build up again. So... Um, at any rate, we did that, and uh, we were there. So there's stories about that patrolling from there. Um, but I do know <clears throat> that uh, it was uh, disheartening to have that a situation where we, even in five days we were trying to build something up, and we had to do it again. I got two lieutenants then, uh, and I, I will say that before that happened, this Gunny Van Valkenburg, uh, he was again a real nice, loved guy, and a real polite and a logistician type. But in the morning, we'd uh, the sun would come up, and you know the guys that were still there and not on patrol that night. He'd go around and say, "Come on now, get up! Come on now, get up! We're gonna get we're gonna get this get the day started." And he'd tap him on the shoulder, <coughs> and it, it was my uh, disposition. That as well liked as he was and all that, that uh, we need to move him elsewhere. So he moved on elsewhere um, to the four, became mm-hmm. the four chief, and mm-hmm. I th- and then again got Gunny Deardle, mm-hmm. and Gunny Deardle was Nor- Norwegian strong. Ah, Norwegian <laughs> strong. He, he fit right in. <laughs> yeah, that's who I'm looking for in a gunner. Yeah, damn right. How'd he wake the fellows up? <laughs> oh, I, you know. We're not going to go. We'll be here till midnight or the next day. <laughs> but in uh, Mead River, which you, I know you want to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. We we were surrounding uh, an enemy organization uh, with eleven battalions coming in, 
a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit closing mm-hmm. the loop. Well, once we got close to each other, uh, then the enemy could fire, and we wouldn't be that far away because we enclosed that circle. And we, we, of course, when you get fired on, it's proper to just get down so you don't get hit. Yeah. Not dirt all. He had a cup of coffee on a canteen cup. He says, <laughs> hey, there, don't worry about it. We're on teachers. You know, Bilski, who you were saying something else, but Bilski and I, we were like this too. Um, any rate, uh, Deardall was holding that cuff again. That's the guy we got. Yeah, yeah. And we all know that. <laughs> he just stood up. He was just, he had that coffee cup. He wouldn't give that up. That's hilarious. <laughs> and that's the kind of guy you want you want to go to war with. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Norwegian strong. <laughs> <laughs> he was Norwegian, obviously. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Um, okay, so the next part of the book, uh, Kuban 4 attack. I'm just going to read in a little bit of that context and then and go, go through that, and then we'll get some thoughts on the backside of that. 12:20 hours, Staff Sergeant Marshall and Corporal Blunt led the 2nd Platoon's charge out of the bank to the left flank of the company. They burst through the tree line and began to fire across the open field into the front of them. PFC Ted Lush was on 2nd Platoon's weapons section radio. Ted was a new guy in the country. He'd been in Vietnam for two short weeks. PFC Cardigan, who looked at him, and Lance Corporal Corporal, uh, Lance Corporal Ken Murray on his right saying, we've got to go. The machine, t- the, the machine gun team exchanged glances with each other. Yeah, same, uh, same ready in their replies. Together they yelled above the den. On one, they moved. Charging through the tree, uh, through the tree line, they, they bordered a dry creek uh, as maneuvering. They fired cautiously as they bolted across 250 meter, meters while zigzagging back and forth across the open field. Before 3rd Platoon could, could begin its assault on the large command bunker in front of them, they had to penetrate two tree lines. They moved forward at first light, only to discover the seemingly unbreachable barbed wire fence. The right squad in front of the fight, uh, the right squad found a, a hole in the fence and the platoon funneled through it. The squads aligned in the frontal assault. Corporal Boranda's squad was left. Corporal Carter was with the center squad and 2nd Lieutenant Melton was with Lance Corporal Scott, Scott Sam, Samperito's squad on the right. The bunker, designed as a shelter against the bombs and artillery, resembled an igloo with a glass uh, with a grass top. It had a front entrance, a tunnel entrance near the uh, at the rear that led to the escape trench, and a few openings for firing weapons through and throwing grenades. An estimated enemy strength of eleven soldiers had barricaded themselves inside the bunker, all armed with automatic weapons. The enemy outside the bunker lobbed over forty plus grenades during the next ten minutes, using the back of the bunker for safety. 1245. During the hail of gunfire and impacting near him, Samperito saw a hand grenade land two meters from one of his wounded men being treated by a corpsman. Shouting grenades, Samperino intuitively threw his body across the two compatriots as the grenade exploded. The the shrapnel miraculously passed over him, uh, but the concussion severely bruised the back of his legs. He rose calmly as if nothing happened and gritted his teeth and continued the attack. The Marines and their enemy continued to, to exchange fire during the assault. Clumps of dirt, vegetation, and men exploded into the air with each grenade blast. Slowly, steadily, purposefully, the men of 3rd Platoon pressed on the prey. At the front of the fray, 2nd Lieutenant Bill Melton, pistol in hand, led the final assault and overran it. Seven enemy, uh, I'm sorry, seven enemy hurried out of the rear entrance of the, bump, of the bunker, attempting to escape, but Corporal Baranda's squad cut them down, forming a pile of bodies high enough uh, high enough along the trench to the rear path. 
Unknown to the men involved at the time, amid the explosions, constant fire and the charge on the bunker, and the general heroism of the Marines of 3rd Platoon, the capture of the large bunker earned two Silver Star Medals, two Bronze Star Medals, and two Navy Achievement Medals, five Purple Hearts, and one Assault. At 13.30, Captain Brown arrived and began re reorganizing 1st and 3rd platoons to continue the attack when, without warning, two enemy who had been hiding just outside the bunker launched out of their positions and darted out of the tall grass and made a run for it. The captain didn't need to react. Forty Marines and their weapons still on automatic and adrenaline still pumping allowed for a very short run. Brown pressed Fox's momentum. He had 1st and 3rd platoons follow the blood trails of the retreating enemy that led towards a set of hooches between the bunker and a hotel company. He had the gunny begin coordinating the evacuations of the wounded and then moved over to join 2nd platoon. At 1400 hours, he led the Marines to 2nd platoon, saw yet another thick tree line masking what looked like a bombed out village ahead of them. Those two hooches turned out to be the eastern position of Kuban 4 and the escape door to Gonoi Island, the enemy's safe haven. About 12 enemy, some retreating and others holding their positions, fired on the attacking platoon. Radio traffic picked up as 2nd Platoon's radio operator, Private First Class Morrison, reported in. Fox, this is Fox 2. The gooks and NVA helmets over. Uh, there's gooks and NVA helmets over. At 14, 15 hours, halfway across the field, Dennis Cardigan's machine gun doubled down, uh, double fed and jammed. He knelt while the men of 2nd Platoon ran by yelling. He tried to clear the double feed, but it wouldn't budge. Cardigan's eyes cast frantically around him until he spotted a ditch. He bolted for it, hurling himself into the ditch still to find cover. Desperately, he tried to pull the jammed rounds out of the chamber and clear his gun. Suddenly, Cadigan uh, heard the voice above him. He looked up to find a Vietnamese soldier in black, black pajamas, half-smile on his face, pointing an AK into the ditch. The VC let fly with a burst right into Cardigan. Somehow, the burst tore over his head and the barrel of the AK-47 rose up in the air. The gook must have fired 15 rounds all at one time. Canigan swung his gun up. The VC didn't know the machine gun wouldn't work. Then, just taking one look at the machine gun, the VC spun on his heels and sprinted away. Instantly, Canigan heard himself screaming for someone else to come help. He had no weapon at all. Unexpectedly, a Marine by the name of Huey came flying back shouting, What are you doing? My gun's double-fed, Canigan said. I don't have anything to shoot with. Huey handed Canigan a 45 caliber pistol. Grabbing the pistol and jammed in, uh, in the jammed machine gun, Canigan leapt out, leapt out of the ditch and charged towards the tree line. With only the handgun working and the battle raged on in front of him. Canigan suppressed the terror that rose up in him and he faced the ferocity of the, of the firefight with a pistol instead of his machine gun in hand. At 14.20, over the radio, Corporal Blunt's voice rang out distinctly. Moe's been hit. Moe's been hit. We need support. NVA are all around us. PFC Cadigan and Huey hustled to join several other Marines ahead of them on the nearby trail. PFC Morrison was on the ground. A round had shattered his leg. Laying around him was a couple of NVA, dead NVA. Corporal Blunt had shot them with the M79 grenade launcher in almost point-blank range. Together, the squad collected Morrison and began running down the trail. Miraculously, the jam, pop, uh, the jam popped and fired, clearing Cadigan's machine gun. At 14.50, Canigan and 2nd Platoon were now in columns of observed six to eight enemy soldiers running by some hooches towards Gonoi Island. Canigan grabbed his gun and, and began firing at the hip. It double-fed again. He flung the gun onto the ground, turned, snatching a rifle from the grip of a red-headed Marine next to him. The Marine birded, hey! Canigan backed him, uh, barked back at him. There's gooks over there running by those hooches. He started firing. The rest of 2nd Platoon joined in, and soon everyone was firing. 
One enemy launched forward, arms swinging and uh, swinging out unevenly at his sides as a round slammed into his retreating form. At 15:15, Brown had helped. Uh, Brown held up second platoon's pr progress to the edge of Kuban Four. The platoon had taken four casualties. Two required an emergency medevac. Brown knew that the wounded had to, had to be moved back to the rear of the bunker for evacuation where the gunny was located uh, and securing an area for the medevac cho chopper to land. He quickly interrogated several nervous women fleeing the area who reported over 30 enemy had just fled uh, fled there, carrying on towards Gonoi Island. That would be out of the regimental TAOR. So Brown directed the aerial observer with the OV-10 to locate the retreating enemy and called in an airstrike. I'm going to skip forward a little bit. At 1610, the corporal radio operator for the forward air controller, FAC, came running up to Brown. So the medevac chopper, at this point, we've had a little bit more, and now we're trying to get medevac chopper in for the wounded. Uh... He came running up to Brown. Sir, the medevac chopper's refusing to land because they said we're getting fired on. What, Brown roared? Two of my guys are going to die if they don't get over here. Give me that handset. What's their call sign? Sir, it's safety, it's safety zone 2 alpha, his fact responded, giving Brown the handset. Safety, two, safety zone 2 alpha, this is Fox 6, Brown barked, watching the helicopter hover safely almost 500 meters north, but within eyesight. This is safety 2 alpha, go. Safety 2 alpha, did you, get the locate, did you locate the medevac site? Error, roger, sir, but the site's too hot for us to land. Safety zone 2 alpha. If you approach low from the west, you won't get shot at. Over. Brown informed the pilot. Patience running thin. Roger, still too hot, sir. We won't be able to land and come into the LZ until the LZ isn't hot, the lieutenant aviator replied. He had used sir twice, revealing his relatively junior rank, and Brown quickly matched it with a youthful voice. Safety, two, safety zone 2 alpha. We got a couple men dying down here. He ground out slowly. We have another fight ahead of us to kill those gooks that were fleeing, uh, that were firing on you, and it'll take till dark. So you better get in and pick these guys up now. There was no response from the chopper. Tell you what, Lieutenant, Brown growled. I have 60 weapons down here and 60 dead, tired Marines. We have no patience for anyone not picking up our wounded. Brown declared in the clearest terms. One damn word from me to them, and you'll be crashing down in the paddy below. And frankly, I don't give a rat's ass. Now you get in here and get onto this site, and we'll be giving you some goddamn cover. A significant pause followed Captain Brown's declaration. Here, Roger, sir. The chopper landed and the wounded were evacuated. Brown ordered the first and third platoons to prepare to make, uh, to prepare to make a two-platoon frontal assault on a set of hooches between Hotel and Fox. Meanwhile, Gunnery Sergeant Deirda was, con uh, was completing the redistribution of ammunition Captured the uh, recaptured equipment and supplies. He and the rest of the command group were saddling up now to follow first and third platoon's assault. The second platoon was on call. They would assist the walking wounded to the rear and join the company when needed. And that's talks to Deirdre and it talks to a savage little incident. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of fun. <laughs> I can remember, and there's a party in there. Uh, adrenaline's going a million miles an hour i mean there's there's it'd be, i'd be lying to say it wasn't sure. you know it's almost like a skier going down on one of these slopes in the olympics uh and um uh, uh we had been again chopped to uh the first battalion mm -hmm. and colonel stemple was elsewhere fighting another little battle north and we were south of 
Laguna Islands, kind of southeast of uh, Hanwan. He was north, um, doing some kind of operation, and always interested in what me, what I was doing, because he <laughs> kind of felt comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, with his, he had great uh, a great book. He's passed on, uh, but in World War II, he was went to China mm-hmm. uh, as a China Marine in '46, and then. He's a lieutenant. He was a sergeant then, and he's a lieutenant by fifty, and so they're moving up towards uh, the chosen reservoir. And his uh, he his book carries the whole thing there. But he went through crap at chosen, mm-hmm. and really some great great stories in a book. I was proofing, and then he passed away, and I gave, I finally gave the should I publish it on his behalf? Well, it got complicated. So I, I gave it to the whole book to the History Foundation. But one of the things, he, he, he got in battle on you. He says, Jesus, I wish I had Dave with me. That really a compliment. I read it after yeah. he died. And, and before he died, let me talk about Stemple just a second. Please. You, do you know Peter Pace, hmm. four-star general? He was a lieutenant there in the three. He was a three alpha, uh, which is uh, in the operations mm-hmm. section. Uh, he was the assistant. As a lieutenant, and um, Pete came, and, and well, we all were invited to kind of a final luncheon, mm-hmm. more or less. I had to go up from Lejeune area, or Raleigh area, up there, so I stayed overnight with him. And then Peter Pace came in, and the, the and he invited also the head of the uh, Leatherneck or the uh, Gazette, rather. Uh-huh. And so we, we that's it. But he was just—he's a cool, cool guy. This is. Stemple here. So, mm-hmm. at any rate, he wanted to find out what I was doing, so he called. And I said, I had so much adrenaline going. <laughs> Couldn't Good talk, right? Fuck it. You, could, you could say, get that son of a bitch. But we were throwing grenades to each other. They'd pop out of a, all these hooches that you'd have. They'd have an underground. And so the underground would have tunnels to each other. So they'd pop out, throw a grenade in our air. So we're only separated from here and you know, no more than uh, 30, 40 yards. So it was all grenade launching. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is when he's wanting to talk to me. Quite loud. I remember and he that sa- part. And he says, give me that radio operator. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, Dave, just give me your radio yeah. operator. <laughs> I, I know you can't talk. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, because there, there was so much going on at that point. We were right in the middle of a grenade throwing contest. At any rate, um, yeah, so that, that went on, and uh, uh, it was uh, quite quite good. Um uh, where, uh, so Dennis doesn't lose his eyes there. You you got Cadigan in there. I don't know how long, how. Oh, you have one more one more. Yeah, you'll get the Cadigan. Yeah, I got going. a little. I got a little. Uh, a little expert excerpt right here. It's about uh, a page and a half forward. The I'm thinking of uh, one guy who. Oh, I know. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, our best golfer later on in life. <laughs> Rod Gerganus is his name. He's from Texas. He lost his leg, I think, from the knee on down, somewhere in that in that firefight. One of the wounded guys that had to get <coughs> out. And we have a fellow who retired down here. He was from Philadelphia originally, and he retired down here. I got to know his wife, but then he he finally uh, passed away here. And he, I point here because it's. Somewhere just closer to Jacksonville than than the airport. I can't mm-hmm, foggy mm-hmm. right now. Um, 
because <clears throat> I visited him there at that place. Um, he's holding uh, Gurganus because they were good friends. And then Gurganus, his leg is laying like this. And you talk about a guy that get PTSD, this fellow lives here. Oh, my God. Uh, that incident really blew his mind. So this PTSD really come, has raises his ugly head. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we got the casualties out. And um, then, are you going to read on this same battle? Yeah. Okay. Well, I have I have kind of like the little the little uh, the little portion right there between you and you and Stemple, the little conversation. Yeah. And I, I want to read. I want to read right. you got right there. And then next uh, week you'll get a chance to go home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, talking about you and Stemple, uh, I just want to pick up right here. I didn't. I, I just found it. Uh, two more grenades blasted in front of Captain uh, Captain Brown as Lieutenant Colonel responded. Dave, what is your situation over? Showers of sand rained down upon him on the ground, causing Brown to respond. Say again, over. Preoccupied, his adrenaline pumping, Brown was far too busy directing the Marines' fire as more VC popped out, hiding to respond to the uh, as more more VC popped out uh, from hiding than to respond to his boss's question. An explosion from yet another gr- grenade shook the ground again and Brown. While comprehending what his CEO was asking for, he did his best to respond. Sir, first platoon. Dot, dot, dot. Brown lowered the handset and crouched away from another grenade detonation. As they adjusted their position slightly, Brown tried again. We're moving towards hotel. The enemy. Captain Brown ducked again as more enemy popped out of holes on the ground. The, the rifles of the men with him echoed into his ears. Without thinking, he murmured into the handset yet again. Say again, all after sit rep. <laughs> That's bad. Finally, in frustration, Stemple ordered Brown to give the handset to Beliski as radio operator. Damn it, Dave, give me your radio operator. Then at 1830, 1830 hours, with the hooches secured, Brown wanted the second platoon to come up and pass through the other two platoons and lead the company back to hotel's lines. He motioned to his radio operator, Ski, order up the second platoon. Let's have him lead the way back to hotel. Marines loaded up with hotel's weapons, one of its PRC radios, and its mail pouch, plus 15 enemy weapons, and enough enemy documents to keep the intel folks busy for a month. Now, in addition to their own packs and the medevac Marines' weapons, each exhausted Marine was carrying at least one other item. Brown was no exception. Five minutes turned into ten, then Brown wondered out loud, where the hell is 2nd platoon? Dunny Deer just shrugged. The gunny knew his captain was concerned with the decisions to leave the platoon under the new leadership of Marshall. Granted... The large bunker was about five or six hundred meters away, but surely the, the lead man should have reached the command group's position near the rear of the hooch in ten minutes. Then in the distance, Brown's ears caught this low hum. He tilted his head, allowed himself to better interpret the sounds drifting up from the woods below his position. It was at that moment that Brown understand, understood what he was hearing. With Marshall's booming voice leading the men, he emerged from the tree line uh, uh, there, emerged from the tree line the words of Montezuma to the to the shores of Tripoli. The song rang out clearly in the late afternoon. There, from 2nd Platoon, came the most thrilling and inspiring sound heard by these combatants in months. The confident tones of 25 young Marines singing all, of all blessed things, the Marine Corps hymn. Chills ran up Captain Brown's spine. He had never heard the hymn sung better. Fox had clearly fought and secu- uh, fought in the sacred boots of their predecessors, which uh, richly distinguished themselves at Bellow Woods, on the Guadalcanal, and in the Chosen Reservoir. Marine Corps lore and its sacred traditions gave Fox Company an edge in the battle that day. Brown looked at Gunny Deirda, smiled, shook his head, and quietly said, 
undamn believable. Put an F word in between. <laughs> Unfucking un believable, which came to my head when I read it. Uh, hours later, they reach hotels trapped. Hey, position. I, I, writer, uh, let me say something. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> As you know, we in the Marine Corps swear and use that F word all the time. I mean, yeah. it's, if you're not using it every sentence, something's wrong with you. Very diverse <laughs> word. Oh, my God. And it's so funny. It's foreign to everybody outside of that, even if you talk to the state police or something like that. I mean... Among we Marines, we use the fucking fuck, hey, fuck, <laughs> whatever you want to say. <laughs> and where we're going with this, but uh, Eric, uh, oh, that's probably what I was saying there on those guys coming in uh, on on freaking believable. That's how you change. Can you imagine? I mean, that's straightest. Hey, let me let me give you one thing without you reading on here. We'll wrap this one up. <clears throat> So, we have at least three POWs. Uh, at least one is wounded. Good bit. Yeah. But he's ambulatory. And so, he's hurting, though. So, it, he he's moaning. <laughs> you know, we don't know. We just finished the hand. I mean, we're talking like the next house. Yeah. Only we got some jungle here in between. But we're not talking very far. And the guys want to shoot that guy because we've been <laughs> we've been at war. The other thing is, I wanted to mention we started at three thirty in the morning, mm -hmm. and we've been fighting all day. Well, we it took us till about six thirty to get through the jungle to cross a dry riverbed and then fire away. But from then on, it's now eighteen thirty. Mm -hmm. We've been fighting all that time, the mm -hmm. helicopter and all. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were pretty well tired. We and I forced them. Not to kill that kid, uh, because he's good for intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so we we're going to medevac him or evac him out. So that type of thing, which which happened uh, later on in the evening. And and I end that chapter. I think it's the end of a chapter. I'm not sure. Uh, and with a a lieutenant saying something about when you guys came back in, all of us had. PRC radios because mm -hmm. they, they got run over. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was a, what, a golf company. Mm -hmm. Not golf. Echo? Uh, hotel. Hotel company. Hotel yeah. company. Yeah. And they got run over. And it was when I was working at headquarters as a retired. I might have been retired at that point. I recognize, and one of the guys recognized me from a lieutenant from hotel. Mm. And when we came back in there with extra machine guns and all sorts of crap, three POWs, and everyone's carrying his damn load. He says, you know, we all we all said, these guys look like they're 10 feet tall. Yeah, it says <laughs> that, that in the book. I know yeah. that. But that, that I heard that 20 years later. Yeah. So I put it back in the book uh, yeah. when I was writing it because yeah. that's what they, they thought. I thought it was a neat ending because it's neat when like that. And yeah. the other the other thing that's in there somewhere, or to start the next chapter without... We had this uh, Hanoi Hannah. She had a radio show, and uh, and we were on the most wanted list. <laughs> and they were so pumped. I mean, if you're on the made big, we have made it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, everybody, everybody in Da Nang and the aviators, they all listen. I mean, we could get her all the time. Uh -huh. So she was pumped in there. So the guys listened to her across the whole world like that. Go Fox! Yeah, okay. yeah. And you know. 
that gets that invincibility oh, yeah. kind of thing going. Uh, not going. We already achieved that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's a lot of fun. Deer Dole was great. Okay, I've covered that one there. All right. The last thing I have is right here at the end, and it may speak to that. It says, they reached hotel's trap position, and Fox entered their line. Second Lieutenant Denny Lister. I'm sorry. Second Lieutenant Denny Lister. Uh, a hotel platoon commander approached Captain Brown with a wide smile on his face. You guys came in, and I swear each each one of you looked like you stood 12 feet tall. You were scary looking as hell. During that seven-hour battle, Fox had one man killed and 14 wounded. 27 enemy were killed, and Fox brought back three POWs. The number of enemy wounded was never recorded. Fox's exploits were significant enough to get written up in the Stars and Stripes yeah. new, newspaper. The article was... The source of Hannah, uh, Hanoi Hannah, North Vietnamese is equivalent to World War II's infamous Tokyo Rose to place Fox Company on her wanted, dead, or alive list. Yeah, and that speaks to what you were it's cool. What you're just talking. Hey, the guys are all excited about that. I know that I, I can't really speak to to that, but I do know that our our platoon in Marja. Uh, and some of the commanders, uh, definitely E-Man, our, our, comp- our platoon commander, and then some of the other commanders absolutely had, uh, they, they, they intercepted traffic from the Taliban where the Taliban started putting, like, money on their head. Uh-huh. Like, get me this one, get uh, me this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Corman, uh, too. Uh, what's that? And Corman, too. Corman, too. Corman, too. So uh, it, was, um, it was one of those. I, I can a little bit relate to that, but not in the same way. But that does give you that sense of... Mm-hmm. Uh, invincibility or that sense of character that's bigger than yeah. an individual and war fighting has changed i think um i was by myself without many people given visibility mm. uh we'd have to give them reports mm-hmm. uh how are we doing you were under more surveillance plus you were a squad as mm-hmm. opposed to mm-hmm. the a company has is out by itself and freer, and particularly in our days, mm-hmm. where you could have, you know, drones or whatever spying on you and getting the information to the uh, battalion or something like that. I would say and, so. Yeah, and it's a whole different shot when you're totally by yourself, mm-hmm. except for your radio man calling in. Mm-hmm. And you, you have, but you were that time. You did something, uh, whether it was going into a village or something like that, or shooting a village or something. Mm-hmm. I forgot what it was that you got you get chewed out, and then you had to you got had to stay back for a little bit of time. I mean, I, I was reading it, but they, yeah, we went south and, huh? and it was a communication failure. We went south, and that was supposed to be the hornet's nest, and uh, I had requested permission to go south, and there was some yeah. there's some confusion on on how that all worked. But yeah, I got uh, in. in where I embraced Grillo and all that, you know, Grillo, um, he was a monstrous type of corporal type of guy. Mm. And later on, you know, this group of ours uh, that you read about, Chris Brown, going into the, the back in Way City and all mm-hmm, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and he's in charge of that. Uh, he, he found out Grillo, you know, he got out and then he joined the mafia or, or something like that in New York City. Uh and he came to maybe one, I think if he came to one reunion, I don't know, it was and not, but that was the information. Old Grillo, he's, he's part of mafia now, which, <laughs> which it's a kind of sea story. The guys that you, you know, your toughest son of a bitch there, they turn out to be the mafia guy, and you know, <laughs> right, 
Yeah. That makes sense. That's a logical thing. I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, so you guys can do the same thing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. Um, yeah, and I would say Marja for us was a squad fight. Uh, in the beginning, maybe a platoon. There was a company, but as it as it filtered down, it became a squad, and even down to a team fight where they we had so much AO that has split our squads in two, and then it was like. A section of a squad you know you got alpha section and bravo section and your apl is running bravo and you're running alpha and you get to come back together once in a yeah, while for a yeah. bigger op but yeah a lot of it was a squad and uh and platoon and platoon side stuff we didn't do anything company after the at least us with yeah. the company elements after the after the main invasion after, after that it was all platoon platoon and lower fight so we do have g bosses and we have the you know, uh, G Boss, a big tele- telescoping camera that that sticks up and kind of it's, it's a big brother to be able to cover your area and watch your sector, so you don't have to maybe push out so local patrols that can kind of handle that, so you can go further out. Uh, and then the the drones are great, um, and nothing's better than the guy reporting on the field, in my opinion. And every, yeah. there's a lot that can be lost from that picture and from that camera uh, of, of the real battlefield, what's going on. And sometimes, you know, we take that technology for granted and say oh we'll just use this and it gives us a great picture but the guys on the field that's why i made many notes in your book is the guy on the field that's reporting to you he's got skin in the game mm-hmm. let him make the call yeah yeah see I, you would i don't think you would with me on that one particular operation you did where you on your own went, went out there mm. i would have probably ended up lauding you and protecting you from that they they did to an extent, but there was some parochial uh, personalities with what company hadn't lost gear yet versus the other companies that yeah. had. Yeah, and sometimes that parochial nature can come down and cloud uh, judgment and cloud what really you know what's what's the bottom line here? Is this a thirty dollar piece of gear or is this something more? And, and I'm not talking just well, about said, that. Uh, one thing you lost in the I, I know that the. I forgot I read it, but metal detector. Yeah, yeah. metal detector. Yeah, yeah. So that that situation. We never had any problem like that. We Mm -hmm. never had any accountability problem like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, You just say lost it or something just got blown up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We had that problem. Yeah. (laughs) So it depends on. I'm empathizing with you because you you had somebody was horseshit up a couple levels and causing that to happen. We know. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's still rest. <laughs> chicken. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I just, I just sat down and reminisced for like three hours with my company commander from that time. Just you know, what two weeks ago up in Quantico. Oh yeah, yeah. And we hashed a lot of stuff out and uh, talked about things, and it wasn't like you know I don't hold any ill will. It's a bad place. You know, a lot of bad things were happening. A lot of, uh-huh. a lot of activity, and uh, you know, it comes with war. So all right, so we was. gotta get moving on here. Yep. So well, my my spectrum will not be <laughs> no fixed. no. So uh, I'm gonna tell you this. I got two more points, and we can move through them rather quickly. And then I want you to speak a little bit to the reunions. But this is just for me in my home state of Ohio. My Buckeye fans out there. All right. Yeah, I yeah. like that story. So it says after the evacuation, the men of Company F uh, had the hamlet to themselves. Each platoon had two squads in the field facing the center of the cordon. The rest were inside the homes away uh, from the onset of the monsoon season. 
Gunnery Sergeant Deirdre and the rest of the staff, non-commissioned officers, ran a tight ship, and the area remained spotless. Fox had no concierge service, but the next few days seemed like an in-country R&R. While the troops were relaxing, Captain Dave Brown hopped on, uh, hoped Fox would be able to stay in the village past Saturday, 23 November. The Armed Forces Radio Network had promised that they would carry the Big Ten Championship football game between Ohio State and Michigan. Ohio State then, 9-0, needed to get by the Wolverines to get to the Rose Bowl for the national championship. Most others were not into the game with as much enthusiasm for, as Brown, but for Brown, had played, had played football at Denison University, a small school in Ohio, where earlier Woody Hayes had coached. Hayes, now the legendary coach of the Ohio State University, his leadership style was brutal. In 1959, nine years earlier, Denison's season ended a week before Ohio State's season, and Brown was able to go to Ann Arbor, Michigan for a lo- in late November to watch Coach Woody Hayes employ his intensity against the University of Michigan. With the temperature in the upper 30s, Hayes paced on the sidelines, always in a short-sleeved T-shirt. The crowd could, or in short-sleeved shirt, the crowd could sense that the emotions were ready to explode at any moment. One play pricked the emotional bubble. Hayes, furious, turned around and kicked a folding chair over the track surrounded the football team. The chair finally landed in one of the front rows, 10 feet above the track. Now that, Brown thought, was the intensity needed to win. Brown compared his own experiences in combat with the football games. Battle, uh, battle thrilled him. He maneuvered Fox's fighting units under fire like a coach moves players on the field, and the methods had been extremely success- successful for Fox. They hadn't lost a fight. The best thing uh, that can be attributed to Fox's stay in Vain Dean II was that there was no casualties. 22 November passed uneventfully. Lieutenant Colonel Stemple paid a visit. The men had their flak jackets on, they were shaved, and they told him they were ready to go. Right, uh, right look, right words. He felt pleased. Go get him, Fox. Finally, 23 November arrived. Fox still holding the position in the nice little hamlet. The monsoons had set in by this time. Cloudy half the time and light rain showers the rest. Brown's one wish had come true. He was able to listen to the Ohio State University take the Michigan Wolverines apart. Coach Hayes had shown no mercy. Ohio State beat Michigan 50-14. to After the game, the commentator asked one of OSU's coaches about the high score. His comment was, quote, If we would have let up at all, they could have come back to life and turned the tables on us. Good advice, Brown thought, taking the game to heart. And that, like I said, that's a fun one for me because I'm born in, a, born in an Ohio State onesie and came up loving Ohio State, and, and that's a big, that was a big part of my uh, my yeah. youth was Ohio State. Yeah. So, so don't read any more on that. Let me let me <laughs> comment if I could. Absolutely. Oh, so we were one of the last uh, battalions to keep closing this. Uh, I forget if it was searching corridor. Or, the word corridor is in there of a type of a, a net closing thing mm-hmm. on, on this uh, unit. <clears throat> and we we were one of the last, and we did stay to hear that game. But almost the next day, we were moving mm-hmm. and we've been there for oh i'd say a week and you know what happens when a when a groups are i'm <laughs> looking at you joe <laughs> when groups are kind of laying around and just doing that and stuff like that uh their their fighting edge is does not exist mm-hmm. you know they're they're not as sharp as they should be mm-hmm. if someone's sharp, firing at you throwing grenades you're 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 cognizant but they got relaxed and all that kind of stuff. So two things happened. Uh, I think Steffel, that next morning, got us together. That's what's called that a Sunday morning, Saturday football game, yeah. Um, and 
he wanted to tell us we're ready to move out and we're going to, well, the company commanders and all that kind of stuff. So there's this lanky golf company commander who got there a couple months ago. Mm. And it really advice and all that kind of stuff. And he kept... You know, so we we're, we're standing around while the the battalion commander is giving us our, our order, mm. and it's kind of outside of a building or something. Uh, I, you know, we we got to be careful. We got these uh, NVA and the VC. We got them, we got them surrounded. They're going to try to break out, and they got mortars and they got uh, uh, RPGs. And things like that, and uh, it's going to be a very serious. Thing. And I said, "Are you fucking bullshitting me?" Because I've been at war. God damn it! We got jets, we got fucking artillery all over the place. We got howitzers, we got marines. H marine can fire their weapon a hundred times better than I just nailed his ass. I mean, I was <laughs> and Stemple, his, his mouth is drawing open like this, like. What the hell? And I'm nailed this son of a bitch. Of course, we're supposed to be timed with him on the next operation. Boy, they, <laughs> there, was a, there was a limp dick there on that side. And was like that. Any, anyhow. So, at any rate, uh, Stempo loved it. Now, here was the problem. The next situation. Uh, we're moving out, and the guys are not being sharp. You know, I can tell when you're sharp. Okay, yeah. Just like this two here. You know, you guys came alive. I can tell when you're sharp when you're not sharp. You, you know that. Yeah. If you. And uh, they just weren't being thorough. We'd go by these hooches and stuff like that. And 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 happened. We left. It, it was along the uh, Highway One near the South China Sea. Mm. And then we're moving back into Gona Island. That's mm. where from the from the east we're going west. Yeah. Oh. Um. And they just weren't being thorough. Like, you know, you should be bursting into that and checking each one of these hooches to make sure that they did have these. They all had these little uh, cubby holes mm -hmm. where you can put weapons and dynamite and stuff like that in there or whatever. They're going to blow us up. But, and yeah, they weren't just, you could just feel it. Now, that's not good if you're going to, like, the, like that other yeah. captain was saying. Now, my guys weren't being foxer guys. So. Someone had suggested, or I don't know, I don't think it was all me, but someone suggested, why don't we torch these, this hammock? So I said, well, that's a good idea. Let's, let's, let's do that, you know? <laughs> uh, it makes sense to me. You know, they're all bad guys anyhow. Mm. They're all straw. And so uh, even though there's maybe 10 uh, hooches like that, so I said, look, guys, I want you to torch them like that. Well, you know what? They got in this fires going all all over the place and shit's going. That guys are how we get we go like this. And you know their general came up. Well, guess who's been ordered by the regimental commander to ride with him in a helicopter to look over the battlefield is Stemple. Don't so, try to marine. Uh, <laughs> so whatever he was, Mead Six or something like that, whatever he was, I need to speak to Fox Six. And uh, I. I'm flying around with this helicopter and I see all this smoke coming. You got to explain what I'm doing. I'm here with the regimental commander. And I said, okay, okay, give me the phone, Ski. <laughs> and Ski, the top, he grabs it back like says, I'll take care of it. Yeah, I remember this part. <laughs> yeah, I'll take care of it. Uh, sir, we understand there was just an accidental fire. Just, blah, 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 just get 
total bullshit. I would have said, you know, I wanted to torture him because the guys weren't feeling it. Like, <laughs> and he was protecting you by saying, well, he not was. saying that. Uh, I mean, we were, all of us yeah. were like this. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was just like one machine. And that that, that did it then. Uh, the guys were up. We kept going. Yep. And um, and then there's one more thing in there that, that comes up on Mead River right after we had completed. Oh, you remember the gunny deer little thing that happened right there yeah. where where he was norwegian strong and we we're getting shot at <laughs> okay that one there and then after that we had kind of um let's consider winning that little fight uh well we had a couple things with a i know we shot and killed a, a pregnant lady mm. you know coming bursting out along with a couple others and stuff like that you kind of remember it's probably in there i don't know um but cadigan uh then a who's a machine gunner, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. has a newbie, as an assistant machine gunner, and Cadigan's a little guy like this. And um, so the newbie goes up to like a hooch, and there's this ammo can there. He can't oh, open it. Yeah, and then Cadigan says, get the fuck out of here, you know. And he, he's a hothead, Cadigan. <laughs> and he opens it, and then it blows up. And it and it, his, he loses his eyes like this. They're hanging out mm-hmm. like this. So... I, and Cadigan's my favorite machine gunner at this point. Uh, and, you know, you get real close after mm-hmm. all this crap. Yeah, you, you know damn well you're you're one of the same same brothers. Um, so I said I'll see him back in the states somewhere and all that kind of stuff. And they just taped over like this, and then they removed him on a ship because uh, they couldn't save him. Um, Dennis. Has a PTSD uh, trip, and when he's blind in in the doggo thing, and, and there's some funny stories he tells in the recovery hospitals where they're having races or something like that. I tell you, in a wheelchair, I can't remember all the details, but uh, blind as a bat, uh, and he uh, gets his butt nailed by his girlfriend. Who then they get married later on, but stop pitting yourself and always get your act together. Dennis turns out to be a genius. Okay, mm-hmm. he he is just the most amazing thing. He gets he gets his doctorate degree, and he's a practicing doctor uh, uh, psych, psychiatrist. Hmm. Not a psychologist. Psychiatrist got your doctorate degree in the. Psycho, psycho, what's the other word? Psychologist is like the talker counselor. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a psychiatrist. And uh, we become extra close, along with Chris Brown and other, this mm-hmm. core group of that. And uh, Dennis passed about three years ago. Uh, Peggy, I'm still, Peggy almost went to this last reunion in Kentucky, she, I mean in Tennessee, and she did. But, I mean, I can pick up the phone and call Peggy right now. Uh and Dennis came down here and talked to the Wounded Warriors. Mm. You know the Wounded Warriors barracks mm. uh, here? Um, and I know I was with him and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but Dennis came down and talked to him. And this is the kind of guys that I was fighting with. Mm. Huh? Is this good mm. or what? Huh? Mm. Jesus. Um, so I just wanted to share that Cadigan story and some other stuff. Uh, yeah, that's it. All right, well, we'll end this out. The last, the last part... Um I think that that I had was was at the very end when. Oh yeah, I, mean, yeah. I want you to get into. <laughs> I got I got to read this part. Yeah. I, I might not have added this in the. Uh, I might not have added this in the read ahead, but you, you're not. You're gonna you're, you're gonna know. It was 
involving you. I'm, I'm quite certain you didn't forget about most of this. It says, as Brown and Westfall's helicopter approached the, the fire support base Pike, high in the mountains, it slowed, it slowed its forward speed. Oh, yeah. The men gripped their weapons in, in their seat firmly, ready to spring off the chopper when, it was forward, when its forward motion stopped. The tailgate lowered, and the crew chief directed the exit. Still seated, the passengers looked out the window to view Marines, many bare-chested and without helmets, moving away from the dust kicked up by the chopper past five feet over the mountaintop base. That morning, the shift in the wind direction had occurred. Whether it was a pilot error or misinformation by the forward air controller, the chopper had approached from the wrong direction. By the time the craft had passed the midway point of the hilltop and reached the downdraft, it was propelled down into the valley three or 400 feet below. Attempts, attempts to, recover the, uh, to recover on the part of the pilot only caused the helicopter to wobble more out of control. Nearing the bottom of the hill, the pilot regained uh, a modest amount of control and lifted the craft sufficiently to attempt a second, uh, a second offload. The wobbling never stopped. Again, the helicopter approached from the wrong side of the hilltop. This time, they were at ground level, and this time, fear-stricken men inside could now see the same bare-chested, helmetless uh, Marines running from their lives away from the impeding crash, impending crash. The aft propeller struck the ground at the hilltop, causing the chopper to begin to plummet down into the valley. While the path of the chopper was different than those of Fox Company Marines, uh, cut one month earlier off the top of the hill and the vegetation was the same. Almost instantly, the chopper turned sideways, rolling down the hill like a cigar. Three times it made a complete turn and three times, uh, and, and three times the 11-foot, 460-pound recordless bounced against the side of the craft. The marine passengers were not only tossed around, but also beaten by the heavy weapon. While they were flopping on top of each other, the chopper abruptly, uh, abruptly stilled at the bottom. It lay in a 60-degree angle with its tailgate at the valley floor and its nose pointed towards the hilltop. All was silent. After what must, uh, after what must have been no more than 60 seconds, the crew chief intuitively began to focus his energies. He was all right. He had to get the passengers off. They remained motionless, mostly, off, mostly from shock. His, vo his voice became commanding, and he grabbed the Marines, Brown included, throwing them off the CH-46. Get off! Get off the chopper! Major Brown was about the sixth man to find himself tossed like a rag doll on top of the broken vegetation at the bottom of the valley. His mind became alert enough to, uh, alert enough to smell, and he could see the helicopter's fuel steadily spilling from the back of the crumbled chopper. His body, however, was not as responsive as not as responsive. His shallow breathing was so rapid that oxygen failed to fill his lungs. His was the same reaction as anyone's would be when jumping into a frigid in, into frigid water. He began stumbling away from the wreck at fifteen meters away. A large beat up marine was trying without success to climb over a tree that had been knocked down. The tree's trunk was only two feet off the ground intuitively. Brown wanted to seek safety. Professionally, he knew he had to, help the uh, had to help the Marine. He reached down and grabbed the Marine's flak jacket. His grip was strong enough to maybe lift a belt or a tie. <laughs> Come on, Marine. We got to get going, Brown pleaded. As he struggled to help the weakened Marine, his breath returned. His grip strengthened, and the Marine, responding, uh, and the Marine began responding and moving for his own safety. 300 meters up the hill. The, the men crawled, grabbed limbs, and pulled themselves along. They helped themselves and helped each other. When they neared the top of the hill, the helicopter burst into flames. The machine gun ammo began cooking off. Round zinged in all directions. Like the others, Brown found shelter behind one of the several large rocks on the hillside and he shared with another Marine. The cook-off lasted for five or six long minutes. All while Brown and the young Marine with him laughed. 
A little at first, and then realizing he was only bloodied and bruised, Brown laughed heartily with joy. Once the area went quiet again, all looked down through the path of the broken trees to a small smoldering pile of metal. The 45-foot-long green bird was a quarter of its size and totally black. The injured finally reached the hilltop approximately 15 minutes later. To greet them there were the Marines ready to help. To meet Brown was, was a laughing stimple. Damn it, Brown, if anyone could survive that, I knew it would be you. <laughs> Stemple's battle-hardened Fox Company commander had survived again. Below his lip, Brown's teeth had cut through his chin. <laughs> he wiped away. He wiped it away. Uh, he wiped at it. Looked at the blood on his arm and smiled back at Stemple, comprehending his boss's reaction. "You son of a bitch, sir," Brown said, smiling and shaking Stemple's hand. "This was your idea. This is what I'd come out here for, wasn't it?" They both laughed. <laughs> so, so here's the deal on that one. Um, I got promoted when I was out there on that same operation, mm-hmm. uh, and and so Deardell and and the colonel came in. They put the gold leaves on there, brass leaves on there. So I was no longer a captain anymore. And then pretty soon uh, there was a guy coming in who was going to be acting uh, company commander, and I could go. So I went on R and R, almost hitchhiking down there from. Air, with uh, Vietnamese airplanes and all that to get to Saigon and went out to my old advisory unit. Um, and that was a fun week, a week, couple, three days. And prior, just prior to that, there was a, we were up there in that mountain and Bill Milton said there's this one kid who was really a good Lance Corporal, been there for a while. He didn't want to go down on this operation. And what are we going to do? Well, you know, if he's a good combatant, you're, you're not going to treat him like he's a shitbird. Mm. You've you got to respect his, his... And so, did, you know, the troops would un- understand if you pick on them, they could be bad too. Mm-hmm. So how do we handle it? I said, well, let's just get him up there. Let's just bust him. Uh, get him busted. I couldn't bust him because of the company commander, but the battalion commander could. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and hold back two months of pay or some crap like that, some... Slap on the hand, mm-hmm. and, and that's about all. So we did that, and that's what I was back there from my advisory visit, drinking martinis, the first ones I've ever had in my life, with the EXO, who was a ma- we're both majors, he's a senior major, and uh, drinking martinis and loving it, okay? <laughs> I'm waiting for my airplane to go home, and Stemple says, I want you up there with this guy, because you're the one to put him up. Ah! So that's when I went on the helicopter up there, with a 106, and do they still have 106s? Okay, it's a recoilless so. rifle. So 11 feet is about from here to there. It weighs 350 pounds. So in Vietnam, when you ride on helicopters, we didn't strap in mm. uh, because you might get shot and you have to get out real quick. <clears throat> so when the helicopter went in, <clears throat> lieutenants, I'm sure, uh, he went <laughs> with, with the wind instead of against it. Remember we were talking about that with boats. Lost your draft, yeah. So he can't stop because he just wishes on by. So we wobble on down the valley and keep on wobbling and don't settle. He's making another circle. We've got to try it again. This time, uh, and, you know, the guys are running left and right because we, we, he can tell the helicopter's coming at you. And uh, <laughs> we go past the landing, the higher high ground, and the F, he has a, the tail down, mm-hmm. and the aft uh, blade hits 
the ground. That's that's what caused the mm-hmm. tumbling. And so we have this 350-pound recoilless rifle and us going around in circles like this and hitting guys and all that. One guy mm-hmm. lost a nose, and not me. I just had that thing there. But, you know, you're covered with blood and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So. Hence the son of a bitch, sir. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you wanted. He got off lightly, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say and so. So we did have the uh, battalion commander's office hours, and he did get busted, and he came out all right. Everything came out all right. But that's the story. And I would, of course, fly in a helicopter back to Da Nang uh, in a day or so. I went down there, and I got iced up for two days, oh, I'm man. sure, because I was bruised. Mm. And uh, I was nervous about flying for a helicopter <laughs> for a while i'll show you that okay all right it's the last one i got here in this and then i want you to speak to the reunions a, a little bit more i know we've started we, we started talking about it but it says i want to th- this is going to uh, one of your one of your one of your reunions when when you guys are uh telling stories before the list gets passed around and so it says i want to share a story of second platoon's quick reaction force brown offered on November, on November 4th, the platoon was standing by on QRF alert when choppers nearby the Marine Cap CAP east of Gonoi Island and halfway between the National Highway 1 and the South China Sea reported being attacked by an enemy platoon. The CAP unit repelled the attack and the enemy withdrew in a column towards the Sengbai Ren, Ba Ren, Songben Ren. Uh, the second platoon, led by First Lieutenant John Scott, landed the chopper near the enemy column. The enemy had only a few AK-47s, though many had pistols. Firing on the platoon, as the enemy had fled, the combined NVA and VC force scattered in all directions. Some dove for the underbrush, and others ran for the river. The second platoon responded viciously, while Cobra gunships fired a wall of steel around them and surprised the enemy. That day, the enemy lost 20 killed, and unfortunately, Fox lost one Marine, Lance Corporal Ray Arnett. This was the last significant contact for Fox in the war. As a final note, the company was pulled out of the field during the second week of March. Then they were flown to a camp near Da Nang, where they were all issued a new set of jungle utilities for the trip home. Obviously, they were thrilled to be leaving. Officially, the company departed Vietnam on 12 March 1971 aboard a U.S. Navy ship. Their destination was Camp Pendleton. Many of them flew back to Okinawa a few days before the ship set sail. Others, like Captain Ed Easton, Fox's last in-country commanding officer, remained in Vietnam for a few months to complete the overseas tour of duty. Well, that's it. Thank you very much, Joe Fennerin, Ian Bailey, and Joe Bibish. We've used up our hour, Brown said, looking at his watch, and then some. If the rest of you have any questions, you can ask them over a beer later today. Thanks for coming. Now I'll turn this over to Chris for any final comments. The meeting concluded when Dave Brown finished his final comments. Free from the rest of the day, many of the veterans and their families hit the town to explore. That night at the banquet dressed to the hill, the men and women enjoyed Pete Corns and Chris Brown's terrific slideshow, convinced Conley to share his Who Farted story again, and welcomed all of the newest members with a standing ovation. From the lectern in front of the room, President Chris Brown explained that a significance of the one low, uh, lone place sitting next to him. It was for the fallen man table. A special toast was made honoring the men and fox who had been lost in Vietnam and since. Once the dinner concluded, the veterans hit the hospitality room again. Now a party had really begun. Stories were shared and bonds renewed until late or early rather in the morning. Sunday, President Chris Brown stood in the center of the men of Fox 25 
who had fought in Vietnam beside them with their wives and their grown children. There, 180 in all, he removed his cap and cued the rest of what were wearing caps to do as well. Our final event is this wonder of this wonderful reunion is it is for uh, as it is for every re- reunion is our Sunday service. Here we can pay respects to our brothers who did not make it back from the war. We landed in 66 and left in 71. What I would like to note is that everyone there wasn't much action. Uh, what I'd like to note to everyone, even though there wasn't much action in 71, our final combat loss in the country took place January 28th when we lost Private Ron Ridgden. The list and all... Uh, I'm sorry, the list... And with that, Chris Brown raised a set of four or five pieces of paper in the air, contained the names of every man who died serving with Fox. This list is far from complete. As you know, we lost many other men attached to Fox from the companies. I'll pass the list around and please read the names and the dates of their death, then pass the list to the man next to you. If you know any others, please say their names when uh, when it is your turn. Help us remember them, help us honor them, and keep them with us always. The list was passed. In turn, each Marine stepped into the center of the circle, honored the dead, the men whose battle lines uh, only the living were left to tell. And then the book gives the list of men from Fox Company that fought and died in that place. So that's the review of battle lines. And if you could speak one more thing before we part, and I know I've, I've kept you a lot of time and I appreciate it. Speak to active guys and veterans that watch this podcast to the power of reunions and the power of being together with the people uh, that you, you know, that you went through that experience with, if you don't mind. The power of reunions. So N Radio was generated by Chris Brown, whose name you just mentioned. And obviously I knew Chris by this time because I, my daughter started the book. Um, I would say in 95 time frame, 96. She was on it for about five years and couldn't get too far. Mm. Obviously, she couldn't. She was good. She's a good writer. It reads, it reads well because of that. Mm. Uh, and, and I'm a better writer now. I'm more sensitive about ad, adjectives and adverbs than I was then. Mm. As opposed to, as Goop killed this, the lead <laughs> squad. Well, she, she has rotating at 350,000 RPMs. This uh, AK-47 at 7.76 bullet uh, penetrates the clavicle of uh, PFC Jones, the lead guy in the patrol, and exit with blood splattering all over Jones behind him. Where I said the goop really puts you in it. Yeah, so good for her. And but I have improved, even though I I wasn't stone deaf. It's so when you're writing books, I know you go right. You'll you'll be better as you go along. Mm, mm. Um, The other thing too. well, that's it. that's enough on that. So, um, somewhere in around the second, she gave that up. But uh, how are you want to know about reunions? And I was, yeah, just the power of it. It came from you. Chris Brown. You know, it came from the troops, which is um, he was a corporal and he left after Way City, uh, and he and others got together and said we ought to have a reunion. I I will tell you something uh, without. Disappointing you, hopefully. Uh, Things have changed since uh, the early 90s. Uh, We didn't have cell phones and the IT stuff. Um, And we're old farts now, uh, Fox Company guys. And so we still want to get together. Right now, you know my next appointment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Spectrum. 
because they got a new cell phone and, and they got to fix it. They're going to change uh, that card. That's that little SIM card. SIM card. Yeah. yeah, I don't even know the name. And uh, we we didn't have that. Mm-hmm. And when I took over the Second Marine Division Association in 07, it was mostly World War Two guys. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, there's few alive anymore. But uh, uh, I I will say that, again, Fox Company guys will meet, and there's not as many because some of them have died and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. but uh, it's hard to, you will find if you take a uh, kind of a study, do a study on groups getting together, uh, alumni groups getting together, it's, it's pretty tough mm-hmm. because of the cell phone issue. If you didn't have cell phones, take them away. The only way you can get together meet. is to meet and mm-hmm. shoot the bull like we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you're aspiring to do this. So what we did was uh, Chris Brown or somebody got out of the uh, headquarters uh, rosters of what Marines were part of Fox Company. Sure. How he did that, I, I'm not sure. He obviously wrote to Manpower mm-hmm. or somebody, um, however that worked. Um so if you want to do it, I, I and even I'm going to digress one more time. You know this book that is out now, which is called Devil's Den. Mm. It's about one eight, BLT one eight, and um, how they endured uh, Beirut, mm. the mm-hmm. explosion in eighty three. They have maybe fifty people come, but you know even General Gray comes to their uh, ceremony. So um, that's a plus in, in itself, as you as you guys know, uh, as opposed to just getting. So I would I would get make sure you have guys willing to come together and, and don't think it's going to be overwhelmingly attended because mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. we're all suffering. Everybody, all these organizations are suffering with uh, getting people together mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. because of the cell phones and this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even your podcast. Takes away the need for a reunion. Sure. And and because, you know, anybody who turns it on uh, can find that out. Um, so we did get the list of names. I became president. Then, and you can see, I got we got the logo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a contest. That's how I did it. And uh, you see, this is a newer version. I had two guys win. One guy did the outer outside. The other guy did a fox. Mm-hmm. And this is a... One of the, a re, I, we started with a cigarette, then they had this pure thing about not having a cigarette, now the cigarette's back. <laughs> <laughs> sleeves, no sleeves, cigarettes, yeah, no yeah, cigarettes, yeah, yeah. It was what it, yeah. we use them as leverage. No so, rags, can't uh, rags. <laughs> it's, it's a, a big thing to get together, um, and, and so we'll get, there's an association. You have to have an association first. Don't think it's just a bunch of guys. Have some kind of an association. And you can you can say we're going to do it here at Lejeune or we're going to do West Coast. I don't know where your guys are. Um, everywhere. Yeah. All over the nation. Well, um, so anyway, it's not easy. Uh, so I would, I would keep your expectations at a modest uh, level because... Mm-hmm. If we had to do it again, I, I don't think we'd get it. I, I know that for sure for running the 2nd Marine Division Association. I, I try to get new members, and I used to go to all the uh, battalions, and they had uh, officers and staff uh, meetings, as you know of them, uh, and I'd 
or even the battalion as a whole. I I give it have ten minutes and I push it. There'd be a few guys join, but not many. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so uh, we'd get guys, but they would come to our reunions. We had uh, we had a was it? It's a a bottle of booze or something like that. A bottle of booze for the last guy standing. <laughs> you know that that came out, oh, and maybe in Reno, uh, and that uh, one of the staff sergeants of gunny, he's a retired gunny, started that tradition. So, hmm. um, I, I just only recommend you study it first and figure out because I'm too dated. Mm-hmm. Uh, figure out what people are doing now, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and then go the popular way. Mm-hmm. Um, it might have to be a bigger organization. I I, I do know that First Marine Division uh, has the reunions. The third sec, third Marine Division has reunions. The um, uh, Montford Point guys have mm-hmm. uh, reunions, so they do have them. Um, but you might be better off with an Eighth Marine reunion, or you might be better off with an Afghan as a whole. Get everybody from Afghan. And then you'll find enough guys like yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and from that, as opposed to uh, Fox, what, it, Fox? what company? Kilo. Kilo, Kilo yeah. As opposed to the, just the Kilo mates. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe like the whole three six invasion yeah, force or something like that. Yeah, and and work work at the top levels with the sergeant major, the old sergeant major, the old colonel, and they have contacts mm-hmm. with the company commanders and. You, I don't. Your company command. You have contact. He has contact with you. So you have to kind of go go that way. But I would enlarge it. Yeah. Because I think so, if you have a kilo one, and your two guys show up, you go. All right. Well, why don't we do this? This type of thing. I think you got to get the support of the guys up above. I don't know. Yeah. We're gonna work it. We're gonna yeah. work it. That's for sure. But we, look, study it. Study how, how. Study how successful organizations get people together on this day and age. And. You're get you're get you're tied in on the internet, are you not? Mm-hmm. With uh, sergeants, major, and, and others who put out information about reunions. Yes, sir. Now I'm 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 part of some of the groups, but I haven't done enough research. I don't think to no. to, to nail that down. Can, can I make a suggestion? Sure. What's today, Friday? Tomorrow morning we have retired. Or are you not retired? Are anybody retired here? Okay. Tomorrow morning, uh, you can be my guest, but <laughs> if these guys are still, we have a retired, uh, uh, is it retired? Regiment of Retired Marines uh, breakfast at the Oak Club. Okay. And it starts at 7 o'clock, and I get there at 20 of 8, and then we start eating. The officers still feed, do all the serving, and there'll be people there, but you, I don't know if you, you can bring him as a guest, and, or you can both be my guests if you're interested. All three of you, uh, <laughs> I would I would like that, and I can. It's ten bucks, so I can pay you. Pay you all come, be at the old club at, at seven thirty, waiting for Dave Brown. I'll probably, probably be there because I get involved with. Mm-hmm. I'm senior now, so I, one of those type of things. They say who's going to be organizing the officers to serve and all that kind of stuff. So it's one of those things. And I have friends there who, Sergeant Major Joe Hool, I don't know if you know him. Mm-mm. See what I'm doing though? I'm saying, you know, if you want to do that, to network uh, the people. Get, yeah, and start talking to people. And we're at Afghanistan. There are some guys there that are, he's the, I think he's the chaplain. 
Uh, he works at the G3 uh, okay. with MEF uh, and it, as a civilian now. Um, but he's uh, retired, whatever. Uh, and so there's contacts there. And we won't have another one for oh, three months. Uh, okay. they, they haven't. But you're invited to, to come. Just go to the Oak Club. Can you get on base? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, well, um, uh, now, tomorrow, i got to look at it because we got another two or three recordings tomorrow. Oh, so i got to see what time we start. If it's late enough in the day, it might be possible. finished by 9. Okay. Uh, and say so you'd be back here by quarter 10. We should be okay. Well, whatever. If you want to go, uh, I'll meet you. Yep. In, yeah. Have you ever been to the Oak Club? Uh, yeah, actually, I just talked to, uh, I just did a PME on my book at the Oak Club in the okay. Raider Room we, a month ago. All right. So if you just go into the reception area, uh, then I'll go in and I'll, I'll pay for it. You got to do that. But let, let's talk about that offline. Yeah. Wrap okay. this up. Yeah. Um, right. I want good to, for tomorrow morning, too. Yeah, I want to say uh, a couple of things. First of all, thank you guys for sticking through this one. It may, you know, this is, a, this, is, this is a huge episode. Second of all, Battle Lines is not the only book that Dave has written. He's written a wealth of literature, both in... He's got publications in the Gazette, in the, in the Marine Times, I believe. He's got three books, four books, and he's about to do... Uh, another book called Shoulders that he's working on now, and there's wealth of information, guys. We're going to promote the other books. Obviously, we have time to do one today because this one was uh, uh, straight up getting after it. Um, and we will cover these other books. We will have Dave back uh, as, as so long as he wants to, and then and then his new works as they come out and they get closer. We'd love to review with you as that comes and maybe help a launch or, you know, get, get yeah, at least great. our, yeah. our group mm-hmm. of people involved mm-hmm. in, uh, in what's coming out. So um, I want to give you one last uh, – I'd like to give our guests one last shout. You tell uh, active duty and veterans, guys, of your, your, uh, your wars and guys of my wars, what's, some, well, what's the piece of advice if you were to, to whittle it down and give advice to the guys right now that are, that are serving, what would you say? Uh, pay attention to your staff NCOs. That's what I would say. <laughs> and uh, the, the good officers uh, give them advice and all that, but your staff NCOs are the guys who are going to get you through, and you're going to make them successful, and they'll make you su- successful. So mm. that's what I would say. And, and what would you say, Dave, to guys that served in Vietnam that maybe still at this point are stuck or, or are dealing with things? What would you tell them? Uh, there's there's the VA out there and all that to help you. Uh, I, if you're still stuck and having a problem, uh, I don't think you're at, at our age. Uh, I, I'm in my mid-80s, but uh, most of them are going to be in their 70s, I would imagine. But it's they're still getting pretty old. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Take advantage of what, uh, what exists in the VA. Uh, I th- that's my advice. Check. Got it. Matt, you got anything? Parting shots? Nothing. Nothing. Dave, thank you from the bottom of my heart right. on, about, uh, for, on behalf of Choices Not Chances. And, and I'll thank you ahead of time for my viewers because they are going yeah. to get something out of this. They're going to appreciate this. And, uh, and I, can't wait, uh, you know, I can't wait to do this again. It was a fun time. It was, it was fun to, to kind of bridge the, the generations there. I liked it. Good. Glad you Awesome. All right. All right. Thanks. We'll leave it there, guys. Thanks. I appreciate it. Again, if you've picked something up out of this that others need to hear, please do me the favor of sharing that out to those people. Share it out. Get it out there. Spread the knowledge uh, and use this as an information passing system. Uh, That's what it's designed for. Until next time, we'll see you guys. Thank you. Thanks. Louisiana Gun Shop, your firearm headquarters. 
specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training. You can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also, a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal, we have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger, we have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking the building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's a funny. Yeah. Funny.